Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, ABC Chief National Correspondent Matt Gutman, author of No Time to Panic. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetInst.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. I think a lot of us embody what I call the paradox of the courageous coward, right? Like we're capable of doing these things that are bonkers, like they take a tremendous amount of courage or maybe experience, you could call it, but we'll call it courage. Speaking in front of a panel, going live on television, you know, with me swimming with sharks, going into the eyes of hurricanes, going to war many times, marooning myself in weird places. And then we have this other side that is like so fragile, so gossamer thin and on our level to tolerate, you know, anxiety that, it can break and then snap at any moment. So says Matt Gutman, ABC chief national correspondent and the author of No Time to Panic, How I Curb My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. Matt is a new friend and I've loved getting to know him and his deeply feeling heart, as well as the way he so perfectly captures this idea of being a courageous coward He's not afraid to step into a war zone, and yet he's felt incapacitated by anxiety, taken out at the knees by panic, which makes him the perfect encapsulation of the binary of modern masculinity. Quite simply, the world is too much for any of us to confidently swashbuckle our way through. I commend Matt for saying it. He wrote this book because he suffered a panic attack on air during a heightened moment of news one of those moments where all of our eyes were turned toward our TVs, and he ended up being put on temporary leave. It was in that moment that he recognized he needed help and healing, as this panic attack, though public, was not a solitary event. It was happening to him all the time. In No Time to Panic, he explains how hard he went to work at healing, at uncovering what was at the heart of his anxiety and grief. 
which is at the center of our conversation today. It's interesting reading your book, which I want to talk, well, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about fear, which seemed to be sort of clearly a central thesis and not something that I think that we really explore culturally or own. But it's funny thinking about my own book, your book to me was sort of the perfect end cap. It's an extension of the final chapter, which is about sadness and men and what happens when men are severed from their feelings, disconnected, disallowed. And as you seem to find, the only cure for sadness is grief, but it can be inaccessible, right? So take us back to sort of the, not the inciting event, but this idea that you're enduring panic attacks, which started, was it in your 20s? No, yeah, grad, grad school or? No, I had started, the panic attack started in high school. I was, you know, a, a massive high achiever and, you know, felt like I had to excel in everything. So I was school council president and every morning I had to deliver, I don't remember what it was, but like, you know, a few sentences to the school about the day's activities. And I didn't exactly know what it was that I was feeling, but they were pretty much panic attacks. But the first full on like sweat through my shirt, molting into a werewolf on a full moon, meltdown panic attack was in college delivering my thesis, my college thesis. And like the thing is, Elise, it wasn't mandatory. (laughs) It wasn't graded. It didn't count. There was like, no, I was Mm -hmm. done with school, basically had graduated. I had my GPO. I just had to tell, you know, the people who I was closest to in in the political science department and the faculty about this thing I've been working on for a year. Like, I knew it cold. Like, I could not have known anything better. And I stood up there. Well, even before I got up, my heart started pounding. And I was like, oh, that's quite curious and a little bit uncomfortable. And then I somehow hovered to the podium and then I started white knuckling it because I couldn't breathe and I couldn't talk and I couldn't remember what I had to say. I only know that what I likely said was pretty dumb and generic because I can't imagine having produced any clever thoughts in that state. And so like, I don't remember what I said. I don't remember how long it lasted. I just remember going back down into the seat and like feeling like I'd fallen through the floor being completely wet. I never addressed it again until later when I began working as a journalist. And, you know, I never had a problem as a print journalist, but when I started doing radio, I started having that strange sensation that I'm about to fall through the floor. And, you know, all you have to do in radio is read the copy on the sheet in front of you. And I'd be looking at the sheet You know, sometimes I would be out in the field. I started in my first radio hit was in Gaza, but I'm like holding it and it's shaking and suddenly words are magically disappearing from the page and I'm skipping over them and unaware of what's going on. And so for many years, I didn't realize what this phenomenon was until like the 2010s and I started doing TV and a few years into it, I'm like, oh, I'm having regular like frequent panic attacks a lot. I want to go back into that, but it's interesting. And you touch on this throughout the book, but sort of the mechanical actions of the body, because I don't have panic attacks, but I have my own anxiety disorder. 
and I've certainly done press where I'm like, I blacked out. I have no idea what I said, but I know it well enough that I just can move through it. You would never look at, I look calm, right? I don't have a sweating problem. But the hey, fact that the body soon, is... <laughs> That the body is mechanized. I mean, what's so interesting, I think, and you distill this, I think, really beautifully in the book, is that anxiety becomes, a. it's like a full embrace. It's mental, emotional, sometimes spiritual, and physical. And so understanding where it's coming from, what's driving it, and how to stop it becomes like untangling a massive knot and... You hear, it feels so physical, at least when I had my, was first diagnosed with my hyperventilation disorder, I wanted a physical cure. You know, I didn't want to hear that it was just this not local anxiety driving me to the place where I was over breathing and feeling like I was going to suffocate, you know, all of it, all the stuff that you know intimately. A day ran checks on my heart. I have subtle asthma, yada, yada, yada. You can imagine. But I couldn't locate the anxiety, right? I couldn't say, oh, it's this inciting event that triggers this. It's this toxic stew of overcaffeination, sleep deprivation, anxiety of some sort of, I still don't know what it is. And like you, I've been driven to understand it on a much deeper, potentially spiritual level because there's no single as you know, I mean, you kind of know, but then at the end, you recount having a panic attack in a completely different way, right? Like, yeah. if we knew it was always going to happen because of these factors, then you can control the factors. But the unpredictability of it is what's so dis- disorienting, I think. So just to step back, like you've blacked out having, a, you know, doing an interview did you and did you have hyperventilation? Because those are two of the major symptoms of a panic attack. I mean, that's pretty much a yeah. panic attack. That's what happens to me. Like I mean I've had them and I've including the one where I had this the reckoning that nearly destroyed my career, but I literally did not remember what I said. And I was called by someone very important at ABC and at, at Disney at the time, who was like, Did you just say what? I thought you said I'm like oh, I don't know I know what you're talking about and then I like I was told you said that I, like so blacking out is definitely and we'll get into the chemical stuff because mm-hmm. it, it's super interesting but the blacking out is definitely a major symptom yeah I don't know I mean I would call it more it doesn't because it's not uncomfortable for me the way that it is for you and it doesn't mm-hmm. seem attached to fear and I've worked through a lot of it, not through sort of the hacks, like the lucky underwear and stretching <laughs> and distraction that you write about. But for me, it's been maybe exposure therapy. I remember the first time I ever hosted panels and a live event and just being feeling like I did a pretty terrible job. Mm. It wouldn't have been, the audience might not have noticed. I think I passed a low bar, but... I had I recognized like until I made my, until I could find a way to be comfortable and present that I would find the whole experience incredibly depleting and exhausting, which is how I felt that day, just destro- physically destroyed by the act of trying to move a panel forward instead of letting it evolve. And then when I do press, it's not so much that I'm like I don't lobster claw the way that you write about that, it's more that I'm like, I don't know. I think I hit the points. I think I did well. I have no idea. I couldn't 
necessarily remember or recreate the conversation. Does that make sense? I'd actually yeah. need the validation of someone listening to say, like, did I make it through the material? Because I don't know. Sounds like a, a highly anxious experience, but maybe not a full on, <laughs> you know, sweat through your socks. You know, I'm having a heart attack, panic attack. Yeah, I have had, I did have one of those in the but, subway in New York once. So this is one of the interesting things about why I wrote this book. You know, I think of someone like you and you just posted these videos of yourself on a very large horse riding really fast <laughs> through trails on which there, you know, are basically a tunnel of trees and then like off a mesa somewhere where you could have fallen like a thousand feet down in a tumble and easily killed yourself. Oh, but you're wearing a flimsy little cork helmet or whatever helmet you wear. Oh, as if like that's going to save your life. So, you know, which most people are like, that's insane. You're galloping on a 1200 pound horse at top speeds, you know, through a place they could easily be killed. And like, I think a lot of us embody what I call the paradox of the courageous coward, right? Like we're yeah. capable of doing these things that are bonkers. Like they take a tremendous amount of courage or maybe experience, you could call it, but we'll call it courage. Speaking in front of a panel, going live on television, you know, with me swimming with sharks, going into the eyes of hurricanes, going to war many times, marooning myself in weird places. And then we have this other side that is like so fragile, so gossamer yes. thin and on our level to tolerate, you know, anxiety that it can break and then snap at any moment. A thousand percent. And I thought that was so beautifully told the difference. And yes, like I do things you know, I broke my neck riding a horse and yet right. recently too, right? Yeah. Recently last year, I don't, these things can happen on horses there. It's a dangerous sport, but yeah, it doesn't freak me out. I wouldn't like climb Denali the way that you describe in the book, just as like a, let's just pull over at Denali and like climb it. And that was scary reading about, I have, I do have a fear of avalanches. I don't go back country when I ski, but yeah, I'm a pretty adventurous at times, aggressively adventurous person. And I do not feel constrained at all by fear. And yet, but I'm not a daredevil. I don't have sort of the tempting of death that you have. And I want to talk about your dad as well. So I don't find it incapacitating. And yet, in the moments when I do find it incapacitating, like you, I also have learned to overfunction over my anxiety and to mm. push through it rather than listen to whatever it is that it's trying to tell me. But it is misplaced, right? Like, I don't have the fear where I should have the fear. I only have the anxiety at moments when I'm like, really? Let's not do this right now. I don't want to psychoanalyze you or any of us out there, but, but we that's wouldn't be able fun. to function. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to function if we didn't, if we weren't able to override that anxiety. Like the concept though, I mean, it is really cool and special. That someone who breaks her neck, like you could have been Christopher Reeves, right? Like, yep. You, you could, it could have been a much worse outcome. Yet the very next summer, you're back out there, not just like trotting daintily on a horse in a ring. You're out on a trail. It looked like a single trail, too, like a small trail, riding really, really fast. And so, look, this is success, right? Like, there is mm -hmm. something in our brains that's evolutionarily wired 
to make us not afraid of doing certain things. Like we had, and this sort of, it'll come back to the whole chemical aspect of panic, but you know, we had to be creatures who were able to put bodily fear aside to go out and spear the mammoth. Like I definitely would have been, mm -hmm. I'd like to think one of those people who goes out there foolishly like, oh, I'm gonna go kill mammoth. You know, like <laughs> taking the spear and like <laughs> lunging towards the mammoth. I also probably would have been the person who would have tasted the mushroom. Like, oh, that looks good. You know, I make humans, but maybe I'll have a really good time on this interesting looking mushroom. And then, you know, provide support. And, you know, it could also be a tasty mushroom, not just a hallucinogenic one, but I could, you know, make my tribe, my cave group stronger by helping take down the mammoth or finding a new delicious mushroom that's edible. So we need that lack of fear. And maybe we also need the spasms of anxiety to temper that. So it's really like, like the chemicals of it are super interesting, right? The chemicals of fear are actually engineered to make us survive, right? So what you get is you get a jolt of adrenaline and you do that because your body is assessing a threat. For me, you know, the threat that my body is most afraid of in the immediate sense is the judgment of my peers. And so when I go mm. live on air and had for many years, that would be my brain at that moment starting to seize up and assess threat and say, okay, this could be really bad. Your group, which is these highly intelligent, super professional, top rate people at ABC who are in this dimly lit cave of a control room at in the Upper West Side, this is my cave group and I'm there to make them stronger and failure on my part would make them weaker. So there's a lot riding on it. So the brain tells my body, you're in trouble. This is a threat. Get ready. And it releases adrenaline, epinephrine. That gives you the jolt. I'm not going to get into all the what parts of your brain do it, but basically those are the oldest parts of your brain that get into hyperactivity. Then in order to keep that strength going. So in the first initial seconds of an adrenaline jolt, and this can happen when you're driving in a car and you know a tractor trailer flips over in front of you. Your body assesses, your brain assesses the threat. It fires adrenaline all over so that you have strength in your muscles to keep running. It gives you the ability to withstand pain to a certain degree. It gives you really impressive geospatial awareness, like your internal GPS is on steroids and it limits your ability to have long-term memory. So anything 30, 30 seconds or longer is considered long-term memory and that's pretty much wiped out, which is why sometimes we can't remember exactly what we said. Yeah. And then cortisol pumped in later to allow you to continue that flight if you need to, you know, in case a lion has bitten you in the butt and you've got to keep running. Your inflammatory response is massive, et cetera, et cetera. So like you, you have this superhuman response which then leaves you kind of depleted later because you're like, you're tired. Your body has burned a lot of calories mounting this response and then it all subsides and works through your system. And it takes 30 to 45 seconds to work for your body to sort of work through adrenaline, which is why even after an initial jolt, you'll feel kind of like the trembling going away and it takes a little bit to work through it. It's not like an immediate end. I mean, it was super interesting to me. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk, 
What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com P-T-T. Let's go back to something you just said that was interesting, you, that feeling of you're in trouble, because I always feel like mm -hmm. I'm in trouble. Anytime someone calls me or texts me and says, hey, do you have five minutes to talk? I mean, it could be my best friend. I'm like, I'm in trouble. Sure. I've done something. <laughs> and I want to go to that instinct, that fear of judgment from your peers and go a step deeper. Is it that you... It's about your livelihood and your ability to provide. Is it from, did, I don't know if you were bullied as a child. Is it going back to your dad, this becoming sort of, quote unquote, the man of the house as a 12-year-old? Did you feel that hypervigilance and performative child? Was that a reaction or were you always like that? Were you always sort of the best little boy in the world. I mean, so there's so much to unpack there. I was always the best little boy in the world. And that's why your book so resonated with me. I mean, I felt like I'm the flip side of on our best behavior. Like that was me. I had mm -hmm. to be on my best behavior. So like, okay, I'm going to put that aside for one second. But so I had this terrible reckoning in, in January of 2020, where I made a catastrophic on-air mistake during a live special report about, about, the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash. And I'm not going to get into it out of respect for the family, but I was suspended for a month. And I decided at some point after that, that I had to either figure out panic. 
obviously I had a panic attack, which is why I sort of blanked out about what I was saying and I made a catastrophic mistake. I decided that I have to figure out panic or I got to leave this business. Maybe I'll go back to print journalism. Maybe I'll just do radio. Maybe I'll do something else. But this wasn't working because I was really unhappy and constantly afraid of melting down on camera, which made my life miserable and made my job miserable. And I really liked my job for the most part. So the first thing I learned was about the chemical cascade that happens when we have a panic attack. And the next question was like, why do we have this at all? Like, how have humans in tens of hundreds of thousands of generations that we've been around not figured out that a panic attack is really not so good for us, both chemically, health-wise, mistake-wise? Like, not only does it feel really not good, but we are prone to make really boneheaded mistakes. And so like I, I went down this evolutionary rabbit hole and a cut to the chase, but you know, humans evolved to be massively cooperative, right? The fastest human that's ever lived, Usain Bolt, is slower than a hippo, right? A hippo runs faster. We gave up muscle mass and speed and size and whatever it was to have this amazing brain. And the biggest gift that this brain has is the ability to communicate in a way that no other animal in the catalog of earth has ever been able to match. And we depended on that cooperation. So we first, you know, we had pairings of male and female at the time. And th that was why a lot of scientists believe that we became bipedal, like why we started walking upright, because to keep our children and our offspring and our mate safe, was better to keep them in one location rather than bring them to the site of a kill. So we learned to carry stuff to bring to our people. And then we started expanding that circle, cousins and kin, and then people who were just not related, but part of our group. And so the cooperation in that group became everything. And so there were two main buckets of human fear. One was being on the savanna and getting eaten by a lion or having your offspring fall or drown or whatever disease, some terrible thing that would happen, but it would be physical in manifestation. The other bucket that was pretty much as scary was being ostracized, being banished from our group. Because if you were in a cave group or some group in the Amazon and you were banished from the group, you were as good as dead because we were not so capable alone out on the savannah. And so essentially is you get kicked out of the group by breaking some taboo and you'd be walking alone on the savannah whereupon you would be eaten by a lion anyway. So the fear of being banished became as powerful as the fear of being eaten by a lion. And so that's why we have genetically, so many of us, a massive social fear because it does matter. We do depend on these groups for a lot. You know, do we want to have catastrophic panic attacks that might get us fired? No, you know, that's not such a great thing. But to have this kind of fear is normal. It's literally how we are designed to be. We need to be in these groups and we need to be cooperative members of these groups. And failure to do so is really bad. So understanding that helped me think, okay, hey, I'm not like this totally freakish kink in the human genome. I'm just like a normal participant in the genome. And I happen to have these very powerful panic attacks, but the brain is wired for us to have a thousand, I'm giving a number, but this is what the evolutionary 
psychiatrist Randy Nessie says, you're basically wired to have a thousand false alarms rather than to have one missed alarm, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're in your cave, you want to be wired to freak out and be really careful of other people's feelings rather than break a taboo and get kicked out of the cave and be eaten by a lion. So like your brain is saying, okay, like you have a panic attack and you burn 50 calories. You break a taboo, you miss a social cue or you miss some other alarm. And that's 125,000 calories, which is the sum total of a human body if a lion eats it or any animal. So we're wired this way. And that gave me actually a lot of peace. You know, and you ask about like my dad or like, why am I so finely attuned to these kinds of social pressures? Why does the group matter so much more to me that my brain goes on the fritz when I'm at any risk of violating what I think may be a taboo? And I'm not sure. I mean, it could be like, you know, just being born that way. And my parenting was like, was part of it. My parents, you know, very much inculcated the fact that I'm a very good little boy and I bring them a lot of pleasure. So keep doing that. We'll keep reinforcing in you the sense that doing good and being high achieving is what we like. I mean, this is a wild theory, but just thinking, putting ourselves in the same bucket too. And I'm not, again, I am not, you know, covering war zones, but I wonder if anxiety or fear exists on a spectrum and that you have to have a certain amount, you need to process and express a certain amount of fear and anxiety, and that we are lacking maybe in the physical side or where we feel like we have more physical mastery. And so it all comes out <laughs> on the emotional, mm. that if we were more modulated, right? A little bit more fearful physically, that maybe we wouldn't carry so much on the mental sort of amorphous, dislocalized anxiety. Who knows? That's just one theory. It's a really interesting theory. Maybe it's a spectrum. And one a reason that I think too, your book is important and important for everyone, but specifically for men who I'm sure highly identify with you as sort of this, an example of a man, right? Like doing things in the world, being brave, and being visible in that bravery, that to actually talk about it and name it, and you talk a lot about this, the absence of support groups, the fact that it's not discussed. I don't know if you're familiar with Terrence Reel's work, Terry Reel's work with men, but he talks about how when you look at rates of depression amongst men and women seem to completely over-index, but once you add in deaths of despair, suicidality, addiction, personality disorders, there's equivalence. Yes. And so I think there are so many men like you. It's It's not an affront to my femininity to admit my anxiety in the way it is, I think, for men to acknowledge that they feel weak or powerless in the face of anything, right? So it's a great service for you to acknowledge this because I'm certain you're not alone. And Also, the fact that you're such a good crier. Can we talk a bit about (laughs) your journey as you moved past, you know, drugs, past psychopharmacology to find the deeper root cause of why you were hijacking your system? And I don't know if you feel like you got a satisfying answer, but it does feel like you really actually started to process a lake of grief inside of you. 
Will you tell us about that very exciting part of your journey, barfing in buckets? So there was so much. There was so much discomfort. <laughs> I want to get back, though, to something. Maybe you can ask me in a little bit, but how endemic this is, the sense of not being alone, yeah. which was like a really major part of this journey was figuring out that I'm, I don't have a constituency of one. It's like, there are all these people and it is so many men. And it was like, yes. of all the people who like, you know, crypto panickers who were like, hey man, I'm so bad at this. And, yeah. and in the middle of the night, you know, like people can, like massively wealthy CEOs and people who you think, have not a care in the world, are the most well-adjusted. The people who have everything going for them wake up with terrors in the night, with panic attacks that they just can't figure out. And so what do they do? They take Xanax or Clonopin or Ativan or whatever drug it is that the psychologist is, psychiatrist is providing. And there's so many more of them out there than anybody anticipated, I think. You know, yeah. Tell us a stat on people who show up at the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack. So 30 percent of all people who arrive at the emergency room thinking that they have a heart attack are actually having a panic attack. Fifty six percent are having anxiety or panic related issues along with whatever else is wrong. And most of those people who arrive thinking that they're dying of a heart attack when they actually have a panic attack are sent home without being told that they have a panic attack. And so for people with anxiety, it just ratchets up their fear. Like, okay, my heart's okay, but maybe it's my kidneys, or maybe I'm having an aneurysm or, you know, a stroke, because that's what it feels like. And, mm -hmm. you know, I interviewed this 17-year veteran of the Shasta County dispatcher's office. In 17 years, she was on the phones listening to people calling in with heart attacks and panic attacks. And she said, the symptoms are almost exactly identical. People having pain in their chest, having trouble breathing, breathing either really shallow or really fast, the sweating, the loss, the tunnel vision, the shaking, the derealization. All of these symptoms essentially mimic a heart attack, which is why so many people present at the ER with panic symptoms, but actually think that they're having a heart attack. And so like generally like the latest surveys, which are kind of hard to pinpoint, but basically 28% of Americans are likely to have a panic attack in their lifetime. But the psychologists who study this every single day, like they have the head of the laboratory for anxiety and panic studies at University of Texas, Mike Telch, who I've spent a lot of time with, it's like, no, it's closer to 50% of all Americans are likely to experience a panic attack at least once in their lifetimes. That's how pervasive it is. Yeah. And so yeah. like, I thought like in this journey of mine, I'm like, okay, I need to talk about it. I need to tell people, yes, Matt Gutman, the guy who's in war zones all the time, who's been to Ukraine twice this year, who's just in Israel to cover that conflict, who's been to Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Lebanon. This guy is afraid when he goes on air and he's having real trouble. He's gonna, he, I'm gonna tell people, I'm gonna confide in people and there've gotta be groups all over the country, but there weren't. There were five listed on the NAMI website. Three of them, two of them were defunct and only one of them accepted new people. And this isn't a country where there've gotta be, you know, we know that there are tens of millions of people who suffer from panic, but there's basically no one for them to talk to, which was really shocking and really sad to me. And that's why every time I tell 
people that I'm writing this book, especially men, as you mentioned, Elise, they confide like almost conspiratorially, like, yeah, I've also had panics, you know, either public speaking mm -hmm. or in front of my office mates or at the water cooler, or very often, it's more common than I thought, going to the supermarket. People, for some reason, have a hard time with mm -hmm. supermarket cashiers because of the pressure and I guess the forced intimacy of dealing with someone one-on-one -on -one like that. Anyway, so this is so massively pervasive and we don't have a lot of outlets, which is why crying was so important for me. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash thread. Masterclass.com slash thread. And it feels like part of that journey, you know, you ultimately came off of your antidepressant, sort of not knowing who you were before that, which mm. requires its own type of withdrawal. And not, and SSRIs are a whole nother conversation. Obviously, they work for some people, unknown how or why, and don't work for a lot of people or stop working because of the placebo effect. So you established a new baseline, right, where suddenly you felt from what I read, significantly more raw or less emotionally muted or guarded. Is that accurate? Where suddenly you're sort of kind of have to confront more of your feelings? That's very accurate. You very articulately put it. I was a bloody mess. I was a pulpy, mm -hmm. weepy, angry mess when I titrated from my Soraya, which was Paxil, which I'd been on for 18 years. And I spent... I, Concurrently to try to figuring this out evolutionarily and chemically, I was going to the psychiatrist who I'd been seeing. And he and I, for a couple of years, had been trying to work through panic. We hadn't talked about it a lot. It was just a lot about treating it chemically through pharma. And so I did try Xanax and I tried propranolol and I tried GABAs, which are basically anti-seizure, some anti-seizure medicine. I tried a lot of stuff, including Adderall for my ADHD, mm -hmm. which he diagnosed as well, which is, you know, giving a stimulant to someone who's got panic is controversial. 
Anyway, none of these worked. And I'm not disparaging SSRIs or benzos. They do work for people. There are people out there you just mentioned for whom they are godsend, for whom they enable them to live a fulsome and healthy life. And I'm so happy for those people. I'm not one of them. They did not work for me. I was still panicking. I was still feeling that death-like vice around my throat, you know, Harry Potter's dementors seizing my throat with their bony fingers and squeezing the life and the words out of me. And so I needed something bigger. And that if my first experience of an altered state was actually breath work. My, my buddy, mm -hmm. like right after my suspension, he's like, you got to come do this breath work class. And I'm like, breath work? <laughs> I mean, I've meditated, you know, my parents took me to do TM when I was a kid, transcendental meditation. And I kind of kept the practice here and there in my own varied form for years. I'm like, oh, breath work. Anyway, I, I ended up doing this breath work with him. And, you know, you're chugging really hard in breath work. And I, of course, dove in because like if it's a physical challenge, I'm all in. And I just started bawling, just hysterically crying in this class with all these people. And I didn't care. I didn't care. It was so, oh my God, it was such a relief to be able to get emotional like that and to just let this pain gurgle and burble and burst out of me that I'm getting emotional just thinking about it because it was so freeing. And this was the start of, I guess, my journey through altered states. I wasn't looking so much mm -hmm. to get high. I was just looking to find ways to get me out of this head state that were big enough to basically knock out the conscious ego of Matt and get to something deeper. So there was, you know, psilocybin and ayahuasca and ketamine and 5-MeO-DMT and basically all of them in one form or another enabled me to, the, to get to what you do read your books when you do these interviews, you do your homework. <laughs> What you so accurately describe as the well of grief. It's like this place that was so bottomless and so dark that in, in, in the sober mat, I always felt like there was no way I can go anywhere near there because I'm not going to be able to claw my way out. Because I remember mm -hmm. these bouts of weeping with my mother that we had in the weeks, the months, the years, even into high school and college, I'd come home and we'd just sit and cry for two days. And you know, my dad was killed in a plane crash when I was 12. And it was like our world was lost. Uh, I was really, I mean, it was traumatic in every sense of the word. Yeah. And it had these cascading ripple effects in, in our lives. But I couldn't go back there as an adult. I couldn't go back to that well of grief. It was too damaging. It was too scary. It was too time intensive. And so psychedelics really helped me to get there. And I will say... Part of how I learned about this or what reinforced it with me was your interview with Ellen Vora ahead mm. of her book. And Ellen says, and something that I will never forget, we need a societal reframing of crying. We need to rebrand crying. Mm. And it's so true. It is free. It is like the best relief that we can get. And it's what our bodies are engineered for. It's not, it's a scary place, but it's certainly a good place. Yeah. So interesting thinking, hearing you talk about that well of grief too, and then thinking about what you do and the way that you sort of one walk that line between life and death, that tightrope. Although 
it seems like you really want to live. And then the way that you, but you're so, you're front row, right? On so much devastation. You talk about Uvalde in the book and having to witness and not only witness, but then package and present incredibly hard things to the public also requires a lot of management of your emotions but almost to the point, you know, I sometimes wonder, like, how do you, what's also the responsibility of the way that we talk about these things? And I know that there's been so much conversation about school shootings, for example, and mm. like, do we break a social norm where we actually see the bodies of what's required Ooh, to sort of snap people yeah. out of it? Yeah. And people, you know, rec- acknowledge how traumatizing that would be for the rest of us. And yet we're also by not seeing it allowed to make this so abstract, right? So anyway, I know as someone who's present, right? Like you are viscerally in these experiences. I can only imagine how that well of grief has expanded over the years of all of that other unprocessed emotion. It's very interesting. Talk to these I think. people, Elise. And I know there are a lot of journalists who can do it as well, but I think it's one of my gifts is to be able to speak in our mutual language of grief. I know this language. I've been there. I know that there's a lot that you can't actually say that the words don't mean anything, but you know, you communicate a lot through your eyes and just being there with people. And it's the hardest thing I do in my job. And it's also one of the most important. And yeah, like I, I am the depository of a lot of other people's grief, including my own. And that's part of what we do as journalists, especially now dealing with literally the most horrible thing that I can imagine dealing with on this job, which is, or in in, in society, which are the school shootings or any shootings in which Mm -hmm. children are murdered. So yeah, it takes more work on my part to figure out where to deposit that added grief that, that I deal with. But like in your job, I mean, you're also talking about people's grief and you're talking about their anxiety and their pains a lot obviously ways to get out of it as well. But that's part of the bonus is like we are, we feel like we're giving back to society. And when we are contributing, it actually makes us stronger as well. Well, and I think that your willingness in this book and generally to not bypass, right? And it seems like you were trying to bypass for a lot of your life or structure over or dampen or manage armor against what was eating you from the inside out and to actually dive into it. I thought it was so interesting too, the way that you describe in the book, the dosing that was required and just sort of your, (laughs) have you read, I don't know if you've read The Myth of Normal, but Gabor Mate talks about, it's like the most stunning part of the book when he talks about how despite leading ayahuasca retreats, it didn't like quote unquote work on him until he had he was sort of pulled out of a retreat that he was leading and put in his own building and told that he was like so swampy, so full of darkness and grief and just sludgy that he was a danger to the other people he was leading. It's a really beautiful story if you haven't read it, but like that, they broke him. I mean, in a beautiful way in that journey. But I'm wondering, I don't know if you've gone back, whether you've been able to armor against the drug or it has broken you down so i was told <laughs> or do you really think that you don't have the molecules 
Yeah, there, there, <laughs> folks out there, there is a theory. There is a theory. Mark Strassman, who wrote the book called The God Molecule. And by the way, Gabor Mate is an unbelievable person and a great writer. And mm. yeah, his experience is, is remarkable. Also, because he dealt with more trauma than I think any of us can imagine as a child. But we digress. So crawling over in this Peruvian retreat in the Andean mountains, as everybody <laughs> around me is experiencing, like literally sequined harlequin gremlins. And a man was, he was taken by gnomes on a tour of the history of civilization and taken to see God. Another person made intergalactic soul sex with his wife and bestowed all of the love of humanity on his son. And I'm sitting there with my eyes open three, like three times the doses of what all these other bozos had been taking. And they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And I'm like, huh? I'm not feeling, <laughs> is this thing on? I'm not, what? I don't think I've had enough. So I crawl over to the facilitator, not the shaman. And I'm like, I think I need more. And it's like, now it's, she's giving me another half cup. So I'm like three and a half or four doses in. I would eventually do five times the dose that all these other people were taking. And she's like, I think you're blocking it. I'm like, I'm not blocking it. I'm yeah. open to this experience. I'm open. I'm, I'm open. Oh my God, it was so painful. And I'm literally there. This is then I ended up taking another cup afterwards. So I'm five cups in, which is a <laughs> massive dose. And the harmine chemical in, in ayahuasca basically makes your body open to accepting the DMT molecule, which is the hallucinogen. So, but it does that by ripping up your guts. And so I am writhing in agony on the floor, literally pooping my pants in this experience because it all comes out of you on both ends and I'm just unable to let go. And I never actually fully had the ayahuasca experience. I've resisted Mother Aya on the three occasions that that we met, I apparently fought her off. But there are studies that say that even that physical experience that I had, the purgative experience, is healing. And it was because I kept that dieta, which is, you know, a very ascetic diet that they prescribe to you during and after I, your ayahuasca retreat for a while. I wasn't drinking for like six months and I felt really good. I felt cleansed and I felt very... Mm -hmm clear in my mind in a way that I hadn't been ever after that experience. It was like, ladies and gentlemen, I had diarrhea for 10 days after I came home from Peru. I could not get my system back on track, but it was mm -hmm. healing eventually. <laughs> I lost a little weight, but it was very healing. The, a lot of the other drugs that medicines that I took were a lot easier and more palatable, but ayahuasca was very brutal. I guess yeah, for lots of people I know, but they go back there again. I don't know. I'm, it's going to take talk about physical. I know. Courage. I'm curious. Well, I'm curious if you've been broken down enough to stop blocking it because it seems like the anyway the it feels like it could work on you. Meanwhile, I mean, I'm so sensitive. I mean, I don't know that I could take. I've never done ayahuasca. I don't think that I could. I don't know if I could do it. But, and I also don't. It's interesting to me because I feel like 
it's really ayahuasca seems exceptionally good for men who need that sort of mm. ego death. Whereas as a woman, I feel like I need to be, I feel so expanded that I need to be embodied. Like my instinct is to disembody or dissociate. And so I almost feel like I need the opposite, not to be sort of blown out of my body, but to be brought back into it. And not to get too woo-woo, but it's, it is very interesting. You know, it's Mother Aya. And it, it yeah. There were 12 people on our retreat and 11 of them were men. And there's something yes. about men needing to get, they call ayahuasca, like, you know, ayahuasca is the drug that just slaps you upside the head and tells you what you need to know. It's a very rough mother, right? But it's the treatment that a lot of men need. So I think there's a yeah. lot of truth and sense in what you're saying about yeah. that. I thought of it that way. And then there's, yeah, Father Iboga, Ibogaine, which is... Hopefully someday they legalize it and they bring it into a hospital setting because that can really stop your heart. It's dangerous, not with medical intervention, but that Father Iboga in terms of addiction is just stunning what it does for people. And I wish that they would legalize it so it could be safe for people so that they're not in the jungle trying to recover from heroin addiction, but it's really stunning. But I also think that's primarily taken by men. Meanwhile, I like MDMA. I like the gentle, loving embrace of uh, being here now. <laughs> MDMA, yeah. Well, by the way, for all those folks listening, and I think you too, we're doing this not recreationally. Like, yes, the MDMA, the mescaline, all these medicines, we call them medicines or, you know, people who've experienced them because they heal you. But I did all of them under the care of a facilitator or an actual psychologist who was there watching me. This is not like fear and loathing in Las Vegas, you know, where I'm slaloming around in a red caprice, yeah. you know, popping pills. Like I took this very clinically and very seriously, even though some of them were fun. Like ketamine was really interesting at times, even though I had ego death and literally experienced I mean, literally, but I figuratively experienced what had to be death. It was very powerful, but some of it was very pleasant. So it doesn't all have to be nightmarish. Although I had a lot of the nightmarish stuff just because I've got all the stuff that I've got to excavate and I've been holding in for so long. But I think ultimately the idea is to find ways, as you were saying, to do it safely, to do it with people you trust. It's very important to be with facilitators you trust and to take it seriously, because these are serious yeah. medicines and they will kick your ass if you're not ready for them and they're not to be taken lightly. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed-release design, which is brilliant and essential, 
to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results? It increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. They can be addictive in their own way outside of the chemical attributes and a form of bypassing. I mean, I have done the three sort of the MAPS protocol of MDMA. I have tried 5-MeO-DMT. I have done ketamine and mushrooms, but I haven't done anything in years. And I feel like they're amazing at shining a light on where you need to look. And that the rest of it is sort of on you to integrate into the horizontal world. And I have a lot of things. I have concern for people who use them all the time, because how are you even integrating what's happening? And also, like, we're supposed to be here, not there. And then I worry about sort of the people who use these drugs and then become grandiose and the gurification or the grandiosity that can come if you don't know how to sort of contextualize some of these messages of like, oh, you're divine. Yeah, we're all divine. You know, sort of like you're special because we're all special. And then I think you see sometimes, particularly with people who have power Mm. in the horizontal world where they're like, I alone am going to solve humanity's problems because you know, I'm divine and I run a tech company (laughs) and, you know, like watch out like that. That freaks me out. I see that a fair amount where it's like, oh, man, let's not like pump up any more grandiosity here. Like we need more. I want to know what your 5-MeO DMT experience was like. So I've done it once and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I did it with a facilitator, but I just didn't really My husband had tried it years before and had a very beautiful healing experience. But again, he's a man. Like, I think that these things are different for someone like him than it is for me. And so what happened to me is that I took it and then I was soaring above a temple and I was like, oh, you know, this is amazing. I was, I think, a bird. And then I had sort of a fleeting, oh, my God, where are my children? And I panicked. I panicked. I was like, I cannot go. I cannot be dead. I cannot leave my kids. And then I fought it. And I ended up in a car wash full of dirty water and plastic toys. And that was the rest of my This was in your imagination, like in the trip. 
Mm-hmm. You went from soaring in over the trip, a Buddhist temple in a... to in a car <laughs> dirty bottle. <laughs> in a car Which encapsulates the with dirty experience. water and plastic toys. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. And I was like, I knew at that point that I was having this experience and that I was not dead, but it was that moment of death was, it, if anything, it just rem- it showed me how attached I am to my children mm. and maybe hubristic because they'd probably be fine. But I just really, it went south fast, but then it was funny, but I did not enjoy it. And I have no interest in doing that again. Interesting. So I had a very, like, I started the, the journey where, you know, you're sipping this stuff and it, in Peru, they did it in this giant beaker lit by a butane torch and the smoke is bubbling up and you're like, she's like, tomalo, tomalo. and so you're like, it's like a syrupy smoke, which is not pleasant to take down. And then went to the, that a pleasant place. There was like a brown curtain that was pulled across my consciousness and it seemed very nice. And suddenly I immediately came, I had the, some sort of death experience and I immediately flopped out into the world like a newborn sweating and screaming and this was one of my most cathartic experiences. I just basically didn't stop screaming for 45 minutes. And like everybody on the retreat is outside. And I'm just like, it's just like this. Oh my God, it was so embarrassing. But I needed to extricate this stuff. And I had a facilitator there yeah. who was just holding me. And they were a little bit scared because I was having a very bad, very loud reaction. And at one point, one of the other guys was like, Matt, please shut the fuck up. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was 45 <laughs> minutes of just screaming. But again, yeah. you know, everybody has these diff- vastly different experiences. You just need to be safe whenever you're doing them. Safe and to have this, the proper integration and right. support so you can extract. I mean, I think it operates on two levels. And ketamine obviously does because there's a, that neuroplastic agent for depression and complicated depression where just suddenly people lose suicidal ideation. Like it can be incredibly powerful even without any sort of psychedelic experience or a meaning-making journey. And... So these things, and as you were saying, even just the ayahuasca, like the purgative part of it, whatever it did was healing. So there's that baseline that you can achieve through those experiences. And then there's sort of the mind and the meaning that you can make from what you're shown or not shown. They're interesting in that way. I think that they can either deliver, was it your wife who like essentially got like the mother of all yeah. messages about redirecting her entire totally. life and and she did finding yeah verse yeah yeah and mine is just like all pain but i mean maybe that's the way it's supposed to be and i think you know you mentioned integration and that really is key and so you know after a lot of people do a psychedelic journey you really should sit with a therapist or somebody who helps you integrate which is literally talk about your experience and hopefully it's more than once and I like I'll often tap into those experiences when I do meditation. I don't meditate like I don't do twenty minutes. I'll do like five or ten, and I but I can find those moments, the nice ones, not the like the screaming ones. And I find those moments, and I can sort of reanimate them, and it's really pleasant and peace giving. And so that's something I've yeah. taken from the integration and the psychedelic experiences that I can practice in a day to day because you know you can't. You can't inhale smoky toad venom on a daily basis. It's not uh, practical. My final question, 
do you, I don't want to say healed because I think we also pathologize these things that are natural and or maybe essential parts of who we are. But do you feel, and I know that the book does a, is a very responsible about sort of not offering a pat, I did this, do this, you'll be fine. Where do you feel like you are on your journey? Do you feel like you're sort of at the very beginning or in terms of really understanding what's driving you? Or do you feel at peace? I don't think I feel at peace. I, I don't know if I will ever feel at peace. I feel better. I know much more. I'm able to deal with the stuff when it comes up in a way that I was not capable of before. I've armed myself with these or equipped myself with these tools that I didn't know I had, but was capable of. I have, you know, a list of things that I can do in my head when I'm having an acute. So like 90% of this is living a healthier psychological life, right? It's like not getting to the acute point where I'm standing in front of a camera and suddenly, you know, I feel like my jugular is about to like pop through a tie or, you know, I literally can't see the camera in front of me. My tunnel vision is so bad. It's to avoid getting there. And it's also knowing mm -hmm. that I might very well have a panic attack on air again. Like I can't say I won't. It's, it is, it's a crazy experience, but I also have all these tools to help me prevent, not get there and to forgive myself if it happens, right? Like, okay, like, you know, I hopefully I yeah. don't, I won't make, I'm pretty sure given what happened on that day in January, 2020, that the ingredients and in that particular story are not going to be replicated ever again. Like I'm pretty assured of that, but like if I make, if I stumble and I don't like my delivery, it's okay. I'm going to be okay. NBC is going to yeah. be okay. We're, we're going to survive this. And, you know, like, yeah, I, you know, I have little tips too, like that help me not only forgive myself, but get through it. Like the concept that a panic attack is really only 15 to 60 seconds. Like I can get through that. I can get through anything that's 15 to 60 seconds. And I know people out there can too. Also, if panic were as debilitating as I originally thought it was, nobody would be allowed to drive because so many people panic right. while they're driving, but somehow they get through it, right? So people would not be allowed driver's licenses if you know they were prescribed benzos or clonopin and they had you know any clinical history of panic. But because we do get through it, we are capable of it. We can get through 15 to 60 seconds of anything. You know, I practice little mindfulness tricks before I go on air, thinking about my five senses. You know, what I see, what I smell, what I touch, what my mouth tastes like, what I hear around me. Now that people know, like everybody that I have panic attacks, like I'm, I can share it if it happens. It's less, you know, the shame and stigma that were so debilitating and so hurtful inside uh, are gone to a massive degree. And all the other stuff helps as well. But you know, there are little things I can do when it's acute and there are big things that I can do in my day-to-day -day that just help me live a more psychologically healthy life, including living a physically healthy life, which I always have or try to. Except yeah. when I wasn't smoking cigarettes to try to ward off panic, which was not helpful. <laughs> sure. Is there anything that you haven't tried in terms of sort of your, your psychonaut journeys or your spiritual journeys? Is there anything that's on your list? There's nothing that's on my list that I haven't tried, but what I haven't tried, what I, and I thought initially I should try was Ibogaine. 
but mm. it's just it's too intense. I mean, it's I'm not so hardcore. anything. And I have you tried it? No, no. I, just I haven't done ayahuasca. No. Yeah, I didn't think yeah. that it would be. Uh, yeah, I was willing to try everything, but it just didn't seem right for me. And there are things that I want to do again. And I think ayahuasca at some point, I'm going to muster the courage to do it again. I'm curious. After we stop recording, Matt and I continue to talk about the gendered implications of panic and my guess, and I know women with panic disorders, and it's interesting to me because I know about their panic disorders. It's something that they, it's maybe not what they lead their conversations with in daily life, but it's not a deep, dark secret in the way that Matt senses it might be for men. And I think, you know, men are really programmed for power and to have everything under control and to be dominant, masculine. And the reality is, ultimately, we're all just human and we're all animated by these very basic instincts and impulses. And what's so wild about panic, I don't have the same type of panic disorder. I have an anxiety disorder where I chronically hyperventilate which I write about in On Our Best Behavior because it's debilitating in a different way. It's very exhausting. But what's interesting about panic is the way that it just hijacks your body. And I think for those of us who are very attuned to our bodies, who are used to mastery, control, making our bodies and minds do what we want them to do, it can be so anxiety-provoking not ironically, to have a disconnection or to feel completely out of control, to not will your body back into conformity. It's a very tight book. It's a 200-page book. It's really interesting. And he's a very fun writer. And I hope that people read it. Not only those of us who have anxiety or panic or feel crippled, by an inability to control everything that we do every day, but by all people. I think it's, it's an empathy-building book, and you never really know what's going on with someone. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, 
Mary-Kate McDonough, Allie Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next Student Visionaries of the Year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.